0: we may now consider together the word you will find in the chapter read. The book of the prophet Job, chapter 24. The book of Job, chapter 34. And we may read again at the 29th verse. Job 34, Verse 29, when he giveth quietness, who then can make trouble? And when he hideth his face, who then can behold him, whether it be done against an asia or against a man only? That the hypocrite wail not, lest the people be ensnared. When he giveth quietness or peace, who then can make trouble? And when he hideth his face, who then can? Behold, in these words, two things are ascribed unto God. First, he gives quietness. gives quietness, who then can make That is, the peace or quietness he gives, in a certain sense, is absolute. But then the opposite of that that, and in order to maintain the balance of the sentence, we have to take them as opposites. The opposite of that is, he hideth his face, and then it is said of him, who can behold him? When the Lord hides his face, who can behold him? That is as absolute as the earth. And this is true on a larger and on a smaller, smaller scale. It is true whether it be against a nation or for a nation, or against or for an individual. And the reason for this is <coughs> that the hypocrite should not wait. That the people should not be ensnared. Well, first of all, it is predicated of him that he gives quietness or peace. This is one of his titles, in the scriptures especially in the New Testament scriptures the God of peace and that means not only that he himself dwells eternally in unchanging serenity but he is also the one would give his peace. He is himself above and uh, infinitely beyond the disturbance the disquiet truth that uh, prevail on that visitor's world. But not only so He is able to confer on the heart of man a peace that while he is pleased to maintain it nothing can take away. We often hear the petition Give us the peace that the world cannot give and that the world cannot Take away. That is true. But the Lord gives not only what the world cannot give, but also what the world cannot take away. No, He gives peace, He gives quietness. And the peace of God is and basically consists in agreement on the part of the creature with God's revealed with. we state that without any modification or qualification. Peace with God essentially consists in being brought to a condition of heart and mind where we agree with God's judgment. God's verdict God's pronouncements on all things. And there there are no exceptions to this. But of course it has to be added that there is only one way by which this can be brought about. But this is what must be brought about if we have to have the quietness, the peace, referred to here and elsewhere in the scriptures. So as we are in and of ourselves, we are at variance with God. In fact, we are at enmity with Him. His ways, and that includes of course His judgments, His verdicts and pronouncements on all things, His ways are not our ways. We have our own ways, but God has no these are at variance they are not in agreement they are the reverse of being in agreement they conflict at every point and that is man's misery that is the essence of his misery because that is the essence of his ungodliness. He is not in agreement with God. His ways are not God's ways. His thoughts are not God's No, it is to change this that the gospel of God's grace has come into the world. It is to redeem man, to redeem him from what? Well, in essence we repeat, to redeem him or to save him from His disagreement with God from the fact that he disagrees with him, that he is not at one with him, that he is not at peace with him. But how can that be done? (laughs) That we say can only be done in one way. There are many approaches, many scriptural approaches, to the question of reconciliation. All depending what aspect of reconciliation we are considering. But this is a very important aspect of it. What is effected in reconciliation? what is effected in the creature what happens when a man is (laughs) reconciled to God this is the ministry that we have in the gospel as Paul puts it he has committed unto us the ministry of reconciliation He has committed it unto us, that God was, in fact, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them. It is a ministry of reconciliation. But reconciliation is nothing more and nothing less than this. To be brought to a condition of mind in which we are in agreement with God. And that is reconciliation. We are reconciled to Him. We are in our own creature measure. And according to His regeneration of us, we are brought to a condition of mind where we agree with God. We are of the same mind with Him. In our own measure, of course. About what? Well, more or less, about everything. About everything. If God does not bring about this reconciliation, peace, me—that is not the way He effects this at all. He brings the sinner who was at enmity with Him, who disagreed with Him at every point. He brings him to agree with him. and to agree with Him. On his verdict concerning his son. This is the means of reconciliation. This is the place of reconciliation. And when we are of the same mind with God concerning his son, then necessarily, in that very measure, We are not of the same mind with him in everything else. In everything else. Reconciliation in this sense is uh, comparable with sanctification. In sanctification, every faculty of the soul is renewed. But none of them is wholly renewed. So while the sinner is reconciled to God in all God's activities, when he is reconciled to God in the death of his son, he is not altogether reconciled and will not be altogether reconciled until the body of sin is destroyed. Until the spirit is made perfect in holiness and pass into glory. But nevertheless, the foundation, the basis of reconciliation is laid broad and deep in the soul. When the sinner is reconciled in the death of No, this is the peace or the quietness that comes to the soul who has the liberty of the gospel in Christ Jesus. And as he sees this, he sees it in evidence. He sees God's anger, not only in his grace specifically considered, but also in his providence. The fields have a deeper grace. The sky above a deeper blue. Everything reflects the glory of the Creator. When and as we see in Jesus Christ. Why? Because reconciliation has been effected. The churches biographies and all others. They tell us of the change that man notices in himself, in his outlook on heaven, when he is reconciled unto God. The birds seem to sing more sweetly than before. Everything is changed. Yes, when God gives why? when God gives peace. Now he is absolutely sovereign. In this. He gives it as he sees fit, and he maintains it in the soul as long as we see this fit. Oh, no, what i one of the strange things about it. Nothing can disturb it. Nothing can take it away. Now, when we say that, perhaps a word of explanation is in place. everything that was in the soul before it experienced this quietness is still there. What served as an obstacle to this quietness to the entrance thereof into the soul is still there. The sin and everything that that implies are still in the soul. Yet the peace of God is in it. The quietness that he gives and the sin that kept it back before is unable to do so now. Not because sin has disappeared. It may seem to sleep for a time But that is not due to sin. That is due to the quietness that the Lord gives. Sin doesn't voluntarily, so to speak, stand aside and say, well, I won't trouble you for a while. No, no. Sin stands aside only when it has to. Sin is always active according to the metal which is given to it. That is to say it never forsakes the field of its own accord. It is active as long and as far as God permits it to be active. But in this quietness that the quietness to which this may have reference and certainly does have reference is that quietness that overcomes and stills the tumult of sin and sin cannot disturb it as long as God keeps it there when he gives quietness who then can disturb who the question of of course expects the answer no one no one can disturb but there's another side to this and we may say that All the experience of the Church of God, taken individually and collectively, is summed up in this. The fact that when God gives quietness, none can disturb. And the other fact, that when he hides himself, None can discover, and it is he who does both. He hides himself. He hides his face. Now, in order to have some uh, true idea of our apprehension of the meaning of this, we may remind though, sir. Of the fact that scriptures, the scriptures always place the shining of the Lord's face as the essence of Christian blessedness in this life and in that which is to come. In this com- connection, just remind yourselves of the uh, words of the ironic benediction. How was Israel uh, to be blessed? Well, this was one part of the blessing. May the Lord lift up <coughs> his fountain upon And of heart. I give me peace. That is precisely the teaching we have here, too. When he lifts up the light of his countenance on the soul, that is to say, when the light of his fame, the light of his glory in the face of Jesus Christ, shines, there is peace. But when that is withdrawn, who can find Who can discover it? I know the idea is when that life is withdrawn, there is the opposite of quietness. There is trouble. There is a sense of things not being waged. A sense of disquiet. There is a foreboding. There are doubts and difficulties. There are questions. When the sun sets we reach that the beasts of the forest do keep us. Beasts that would not dare come out while the sun was shining. Now is the time for them to come out. He hideth his face. And oh, what a difference there is between the shining and the hiding of God's face and we wouldn't be going too far in saying that all acquaintance with vital godliness consists in our knowledge of this fact the difference there is between the shining and the high of course, is. Who can discover? This is the complaint of the church, as you will have it in the Song of Solomon. I went about the streets, asking, having seen him whom I saw I went around the streets seeking him. She was conscious of the difference between his presence and his absence. Now if that is so, if that lies so near the center of vital godliness, Well, might we ask ourselves the question, what know we of this? What do we know of it? Well, it is obvious that only those who have seen the light can understand what darkness is. themselves and realize the disappointment of things not falling out as they expected. As someone has put it, I thought this life was to abide with me always, and I made my plans accordingly. What a disappointment then, that, instead of life. Darkness came, even darkness, that could be found. And here, precisely, man learns two very important lessons. He learns first his absolute dependence upon God. He learns that he cannot create light. He learns that he cannot discover God when he hides himself. He learns that he is in the hand of the eternal with them whatsoever seemeth good in his sight. Dependence. Mm. Uh, Accidentally that is not possible. It is quite obvious it is not. What people like to believe about themselves, both in in material and in spiritual things is that they are independent. A a feeling of independence gives wonderful satisfaction to the heart of man. As as is expressed by the poet, I am, he says, I am I am the captain of my soul. To learn otherwise, and to learn it by means and in ways we never expected, is something that is most disappointing. Most disappointing to human pride. Human arrogance, and it is it is really it is it is interesting to know how human pride insinuates itself and into the very life of the godly. There is need of tuning. There is need of cutting down. There is need of keeping us where we belong. At the footstool of sovereign mercy. A man would rather walk on his own. But this is a lesson he has to learn. That he is dependent upon God that's the first one the next very important lesson he has to learn is this that while he is always dependent upon God while his breath spiritually and physically considered is in God's heart that does not take away from his obligation to God. His obligation at all times and in all conditions to live to God and not to himself. That is the paradox that is at the very heart of the life of faith and it is a paradox that will force itself upon us sooner or later there is no avoiding it the only way of avoiding it is avoiding the life of faith but if we know anything of that life then sooner or later we come up against us. There's no escape. When he gives quietness, who then can disturb? When he hides his face, who can find him? know that as these propositions have stated what underlies them is the unchanging sovereignty of God his who over all creatures we must beware of, of narrowing down a Christian terms that are full of meaning when we speak of the sovereignty of God we mean essentially God's sovereignty. We are not confined to confine that to election and one or two other doctrines. No, no. The sovereignty of God is as wide and it is in fact God's home, his kingship, his absolute sovereignty, that is that he doeth according to his will in the armies of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. That's the sovereignty of God. That's the meaning of it. Now, that's precisely what is said here in the foreground. When he does a thing, who can do otherwise? Who can withstand him? Who can say unto him, what doest (laughs) thou? Know the quietness that he gives is not something separable from this. The quietness that God gives is rest. In his poverty, rest in his revealed will. And unless I find rest in the revealed will of God, there is no rest for me in time or eternity. For there is no rest or peace, saith the Lord unto the wicked. It is rest in himself. Rest in the Lord and patiently wait for him. Do not fret. Oh. That is the opposite of resting in God. Fretting. And that is what the human heart is full of. That's what we had in mind when we said, disagreement with God, disagree Why does he do this? Why does he do that? Why not do this? There is a verse in this chapter itself, which is very significant in that connection. The 33rd verse, we shall just read it. Should it be according to thy will? Should it be according to thy will? Well, I would answer immediately and say, Yes, it should be according to my will. That's what I would like. That it should be according to my will. To what I desire. To what I feel. But will it? Should it be according to should I will, He will recompense it, whether thou refuse or whether thou choose. You refuse and you're choosing, and I like who will do it in this matter. He will do it, whether you refuse or whether you choose, He will recompense. Whether you fret, or whether you be reconcile, he's going to do it. He does his will in the arms of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. But oh, what a difference in the condition of my own soul, the condition between refusing and choosing. The difference between left and being reconciled. The difference it makes in the soul itself. It makes no difference to the actual carrying out of the divine will. But when it happens that I should be enabled to choose that is to be reconciled, Instead of refusing, that is there, or oh, the difference—that's the difference between the quietness he has spoken of and the you've spoken of too, spoken of by inference. When he giveth quietness, who then can make trouble? When he at his face, who then can behold Jeremiah knew this condition well. This was the essence of his lamentation. What did he say? Thou coverest thyself with a thy cloud that thou there cannot go through. he hide themselves, himself who then can behold him. Now let us not become lock and therefore erroneous in our view of truth. truth. Truth consists as much in balance as in any statement or statements that can be made. when we acknowledge and bow before the throne of God, when we acknowledge and bow before his unchanging sovereignty, his right to do what he will with us all. Let us not fall into the opposite extreme. Let us not think that because God is sovereign then the creature has no responsibility. And in that connection we say this only and we conclude. What people do, remind themselves of today and yesterday of course is this, that their first relation with God is not as a Savior. And that is what so often lost sight of. Our first relationship with God is not as a Savior, but as a Creator and a Lawgiver. If we are to do business with God, According to the revelation given us in his word, this is the order in which we must do it. We must acknowledge him as God the creator. God the Lord the Before we can know or acknowledge him as God the Savior. What does that mean? What's the practical lesson from that? Well, it is this. Our first question in regard to what God says before us is not the question what we are to get out of it. What profit it is going to bring us. That's not the first question at all. The first question is what does God say? with the end of all controversy and I should apply myself to what God says as he speaks to me as my creator and my lawgiver. And furthermore, it is only as I acknowledge him thus that he he can have any meaning whatsoever to me as God the Redeemer. Now those of you who are acquainted with uh, systematic theology, doctrine in in system, know that in dealing with the doctrine of God, this is the order that is always followed. First, God the Creator, God the Lord Giver, and then God the the Redeemer. I should hear what he he says without asking any question, what good is it going to do? My friends, we are all full of these questions. What good is it going to do? Well, I repeat, we should never ask that question at all. What good will it do me if I do this or that? You have no right with that question at all. It is not what good it will do you. The question is wholly at this, don't you? What does God say? What does he say? And we have no right to sit down and to argue or speculate about what good will I get out of it? See, thousands have ruined themselves with these questions. What good will I get out of it? We are so mercenary. In old thinking. So self-centered. Not what you will get out of it. But what does God require of you? I am convinced that much of the loose thinking and therefore of the loose practice of the day in the things of God finds its root exactly here, that people have got over the question of God's rights, and they have centered everything in this their own thought own product. And that, and that incidentally, is what makes the soul fed. What good will this do me? I cannot believe that this or that will do me any good, so why then will, why do I have to endure it? That's the reasoning of this. Of the human mind. You endure it because it's God's will. And if we were right in our attitude towards God, that would be sufficient. There is the added motive, of course. When we are right, basically, there is the added motive that it will work for good, but not until we are brought. To a condition of reconciliation with God. And I think that's what the Apostle has in mind when he says, at least that he has this in mind when he, when he addresses the believers as saying, We beseech you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. He's talking to believers there. Be ye reconciled to God reconciled to him in the ruling of his providence concerning yourself. It is not easy. Not only that it is not easy, it is impossible. It is something that only the grace of God can do. But it is in the realm of the impossible that God reveals himself. It is as he works in the realm of the impossible that we recognize him as God. The realm in which none other can work. That is the meaning, I take it, of the common saying, Man's extremity is God's opportunity. It is a saying that's often used of its exactitude uh, and correctness theologically. I will not comment, but I take it that, in as far as it can be taken with a scriptural sense, That is the sense of it. God's realm is the realm of the impossible. That is the impossible with man. What is impossible with man is possible with God.